You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very glad to have you along with me today. I feel like I need to give a bit of a disclaimer before I start the show. So those of you who've been along for this ride with me for a while may know that I grew up in many, many different places. I was born in Michigan, then I moved to Wisconsin, then Indiana, then West Virginia, then my parents moved to Illinois, but I didn't go because I was in college. And I came to New York following college. I've been here ever since, which means I've lived in New York longer than I've lived anywhere else. But on occasion, when I'm either traveling or, full disclosure, drinking, my accents come out. Usually I have no accent. People cannot tell where I'm from. But sometimes when I'm in the company of somebody who's in particular from the South, my West Virginia comes out just a little bit. And since Christy Wright from Tennessee is in the studio (laughs) with me today, I feel like that could possibly happen. And so I just want you all to know it is authentic. It's not (laughs) like I'm just adopting the accent. I am not an accent slut, although I do know people who are. But sometimes we're not drinking anything but water and coffee this morning. That's right. That's true. So it shouldn't happen, but it could happen. And Christy is here from Tennessee. She's here from Nashville to celebrate the launch of her new book. Christy, as many of you know, is one of the fabulous Dave Ramsey personalities, a new friend of mine. I'm really, really glad to have you here. And congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We welcome you in the South anytime. We're very friendly down there. Well, thank you. (laughs) The new book, Business Boutique, A Woman's Guide for for making money doing what she loves. And this is a swath of the women's market that you've really taken on. You are all about entrepreneurship, all about starting a business. Where did this come from for people who don't know you? Sure. Well, my mom actually started a little bakery when I was six months old to raise and support me as a single mom. And so my introduction to business was very early. I was raised in the business, literally, at times. Anyone listening that has a small business, they're like, oh, yeah, I know. I bring my kids, you know, at all hours. And so that was what started it for me. But having that example of a woman that was using her strengths and her gifts and making money, Mm -hmm. unapologetically making money, doing what she loved was a really powerful example for me to watch firsthand. And then for me, I've always been very entrepreneurial. And so I have a million ideas a minute and I love business. So I went on to pursue a degree in business and get uh, I became a certified business coach and I've had my own side businesses along the way. And I'm just seeing this movement. And Jean, you and I have talked about this before when you were a guest on the Business Boutique podcast, but there's something happening right now in our economy where 
entry into the marketplace is easier than ever before. You're seeing uh, 40, 50 million Americans working as freelancers or independent mm-hmm. workers where you could start a business tomorrow with nothing more than your idea and a Facebook page. So you don't have to have all this startup capital and a brick and mortar store. You can start making money from home on your own terms with that flexibility that you're looking for. And um, what I've found in my experience and research is that while pursuing what you love is incredibly rewarding, it also can be overwhelming to tackle a business. And so yeah. that's why I wrote my book was to give women the plan they need to win. You know, before I did this show, I did a, an XM show for Oprah's channel. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about starting a business. And I always was astonished that whenever I asked somebody who had a fabulous business, I mean, Spanx was right. one of the businesses. Right. And I, I at one point asked Sarah Blakely, well, how much did you start with? Right. And the answer was always $5,000. Mm. You know, and I know that a lot of the people, a lot of the women that, that you work with are right. starting with even less and they're not approaching it necessarily as a full-time endeavor to begin with. Right. They're just, they're going to launch their side gig. They're right. going to do it while they continue to work, and they're going to see if it takes off. Right. Kendra Scott, for example, started with less than $500. My mom started her business with $64 to her name. And so you really can't start very small and start with what you have. And here's what's so great about this, which I know you teach this. When you start with what you have and you keep your costs down when you're getting started, not only are you lowering your risk, because this business isn't proven yet, by the right. way. You need to prove it. You're starting with a lot less risk, but you're keeping a lot more money in your pocket. And you know your friends with Dave Ramsey, but he started his business that has 600 team members on a card table in his living room. And so you can start small and grow slow and then reinvest in the business as the revenues justify it. So the startup cost doesn't have to be a barrier for you to do what you love. You can start right now and start with what you have. And start nights, weekends, your off time so that I don't like to see people quitting their day job before it's time to quit the day job because when the business is unproven, you're really not sure if it's a business or if it's a hobby. you got to make sure that you can make money with this. Right. It's not proven. And what happens is not only do you have a lot more risk if you were to take that leap, but then it takes all the fun out of it because it becomes this unbelievable burden and pressure to make it work versus testing to see if it works. And you're going to have a lot more fun with the business and it will probably be more successful if you have your day job still supporting it until the business can support itself. Tell me about the first business you started when you were 23. (laughs) So I, as a college graduate, had this bright idea to move to a farm, which I realize is not really normal. I wasn't raised on a farm, even though I grew up in the South, but I'd always loved animals and had Mm -hmm. this idea that I wanted to live on a farm one day. And so I got an opportunity to rent a 40 acre farm and I moved there. And when I when I went to the farm to visit, it was um, $1,500 a month, which is three times what I was paying at my apartment at the time. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to afford this by myself. And I was an entry-level salary in Nashville, you know, right out of college in my day job. And I saw that they had an 11-stall barn on the property. And I thought, done. I'll just start a horse boarding business to pay my rent here. And that's what I did. And honestly, it's as a silly example as it is, that's what I teach women to do. What do you have? Whether that's a skill you have, education, a degree you have, a sewing machine, a swimming pool, what do you have that you can start with right now? Because when you start with what you have, like we said, you're going to have a lot less cost to get started. And here's the difference between Nashville and New York, that $1,500 a month, Mm -hmm. that would have been one horse. Right. right, I mean, my daughter rode for a while and leasing a horse. We Mm -hmm. never bought one, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, No offense to any of the horse people out there. It's just, I mean, I think, I I talked to my sister-in-law who grew up in Ohio and her sister in Ohio has horses. And it's so 
much less money to have a horse in Ohio than it is to have、uh, a horse in New York. Oh, it of course, crazy, right? Crazy, crazy, crazy. But I digress. <laughs> you,、um, I know that you say that more women than ever are starting businesses these days. So how do I know if my idea is scalable? How do I know if my idea? Is a business rather than a hobby? How do you go through the process of actually proving it? That's a great point. One of the things I see a lot of times in、uh, my coaching is women ask me, "How do I know if it can make money?" And what's interesting is what they're asking is not necessarily if it can make money. If your business solves a problem, if you're helping people in some way, it can make money. People will pay you to solve their problems. It can. But what they're asking is. Will it make money? And the truth is, in business, there's no guarantee. You have to prove it. You have to try it. You have to test and experiment. But so many people want there to be a risk-free path to proving the idea before they actually put themselves on the line. But、mm-hmm. you have to put yourself on the line. You have to throw some things against the wall and see what sticks. And that's why I teach people to start small. You want to dip your toe in the water, not jump in the deep end. But that's how you test and prove if it will make money. Now it can make money if you're solving a problem, if you're helping people, because that's what we're doing in business. Businesses exist to serve and help people. People. Right. So if it can make money, you want to find out if it will by actually doing the thing. And what I found is, what you need if you want to win in business at any stage, whether you're and you know just have this little idea or you're running a successful small business, you need a plan. You need a plan to win. You know, it's not having too many things to do that overwhelms us. It's not knowing what to do. But the moment we have a plan, a step by step proven path, you can follow the steps. So does that mean a written business plan? Because I have heard so many people go back and forth. Over the necessity for a written plan, where, where do you fall on this? It's interesting because I think that you have two extremes of that argument. So you have people that say you have to have a fifty-page, you know, Harvard business plan before you ever do anything. I disagree with that. I think you learn the most by doing. So get moving, get out there and test stuff because you're going to learn when you're out there on the front lines. But if you don't plan at all, if you don't think through what you want your future to be like in a year, three years, five years, if you don't think through what your goals for this business are, then what happens is you can end up crossing. Someone else's finish line. So I want you to start your business with the end in mind, and that's exactly why I wrote my book, cover to cover. It is a plan, but it's a plan that I expect you to create as you're doing the thing. You're not going to get everything perfect before you ever take that first step. You're going to do both at the same time. You're going to plan and also get out there and get moving and and adjust. I、right. know that you've got five obstacles that women face along the way to business success. I want to come back and talk about that in just a sec. But let me remind everybody: her money is brought to you by Fidelity Invest. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com/slash/it's-time. You'll find more conversations like the one I'm having right now with Christy Wright. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, and that includes. Taking the leap to start your very own business again. That's fidelity.com/slash. It's time. So, as I said, we are back with Christy Wright. Her new book is called Business Boutique. How's it feel to have your first book underneath you? Well, you know, when you when I had you as a guest on the Business Boutique podcast, I asked you, you know, what is it like to be as your tenth book now? You know, you're such a pro, but to hold your first one in your hands is just an incredible experience to see the the hard work over years of so many people come to life. It's it's a very awesome feeling to hold it in your hands. I was with you the day that you got the、right. very first copy, and you. We're just overjoyed.、Oh, it was、absolutely. really, it was terrific to see. All right, obstacles. When we start businesses, we face 
obstacles. It's sure. not it's it's not easy to right. start a business. So we talked about not having a plan. That's, right. that's the first one. Second one, I think, is something that we face whether we're starting a business or whether we're just continuing to work a day to day job, and that's life balance. Right. I mean, your mom. Where do you fall on the idea of work-life balance, is it possible? You know, what's interesting is I think people have the wrong idea of what balance should be. And I've taught on this topic for a while, and there's all these myths. Like, many people say, okay, well, uh, is life balance that I should spend 50% of my time at work, whether that's a career or your business, 50% of my time working and 50% of my time at home? And that's not realistic for most people. Some people don't even desire that. And so my argument is that life balance is not about a 50-50 split. It's about being 100% present. So wherever you are, be there. Like right here, right now, I'm with you. I'm in this awesome studio. We're, we're launching my book today. Now, I have two boys at home, but when I'm at home, I'm with them. I'm focused on being with them. So it's really about being present wherever you are. And so many other people get caught up in this idea of the different areas of our life. Like we have our physical goals and our spiritual goals and our intellectual goals, career goals. So does life balance mean that I'm supposed to give everything an equal amount of time? And I don't think that's it either. I think it's about doing the right things at the right time. So right now, this spring, I'm traveling all over. I'm launching a book. It's so exciting. And I'm fully focused to get momentum here, which is what you need to do if you want to win in any area of your life. But last fall, I had a baby in September and all of the whole fall for four months, I didn't work. I was a mom. And so you're going to have different seasons where you have focus in different areas and that's okay. But over the course of your life, you create balance as you spend your time on only what's most important to you. And that's really, for me, what it comes down to. It's not about doing too many things. It's about doing the wrong things sometimes. Does that enable you to let go of the guilt that some moms feel when traveling? Yes. And I'll tell you, this is not a, a you flip a switch and I never feel guilty again. But this is a daily struggle that I walk out. But what I found is when I focus on what I'm going to, so in this case, New York and a book launch day, then it helps me remove the guilt. Because what I've noticed is as moms, as women, it's very easy to focus on what we're leaving behind. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're looking through the rearview mirror of your life all the time versus the front windshield of where you're going to. So when you're present in one place, you feel guilty for being absent in another. And it steals the moment from you. So if all day today I was focused on the fact that I just found out 20 minutes ago, my son has a double ear infection, and a sinus infection. I would feel guilty all day and miss this launch day. But the truth is, I'm going to be home in a couple days, and I'm going to be with him. I have my mother-in-law. I have my mom, people that are taking care of him. Yeah. So you, you've got balance when you focus on where you are and give your attention there. I love that, looking through the front view rather right. than the rear view. I that a, makes a lot of sense to me. I have a friend, Tony, that says, I'm always driving to somewhere that I love. So when I'm driving to work, I'm driving to somewhere that I love. And when I'm driving home, I'm driving to somewhere that I love. So it's focusing on what you're driving to. Perfect. That's perfect. Okay. Talk to me about selling. And I got to say, I think this is a big obstacle. It's a big obstacle for me. I think I'm terrible at it. (laughs) I mean, I'm great at imparting information, right? but that doesn't feel like selling. To me, that feels like giving, actually. So what's the difference and how can we embrace it when we have a product to sell? Well, I think you just brought up a really good point because for you, you said it doesn't feel like selling. It feels like giving. But what you are, you're selling ideas. You're influencing people. You're teaching women how to take control of their money and those types of things. For most of us, the reason we're uncomfortable selling is because 
more often than not, we have a bad one or two or more bad experiences with a pushy salesperson, and that frames our whole idea of sales. And we think, oh, well, if I'm going to sell, then that means I have to be pushy and aggressive and take advantage of people and twist their arms and push my agenda. And that's not what good sales is at all. In fact, good sales means taking care of people. It means serving them. It means sharing your heart and telling your story. You know, Gina, I think I've told you I've done research for years on women with business. And when I asked them how they feel about selling, they all said, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I just feel I just feel bad. I don't want to get on people's nerves. You know, they all felt uncomfortable. But then maybe five or 10 minutes later in the interview, I said, well, tell me why you love this business. And they would spill over sharing their heart. Mm-hmm. And oh, I love as a photographer capturing these moments for families, or I love watching little girls twirl around in the church lobby in a dress that I sewed. And as they're sharing their heart, I wanted to buy from them right then because they're just sharing their heart and telling their story. So, so much of our sales, problem with sales or uncomfortableness, I guess, comes from our idea of sales. And if we can reframe what good sales actually is, then we can sell with confidence. It's not only something we can do, but we can actually be proud to do it. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Talk to me a little bit about funding a business. I mean, women, and I've run these numbers, and I know you've run these numbers, we have a tougher time raising capital. We just just do. So how do you teach the women that you work with to get through that? Well, obviously, you know I work for Dave Ramsey, so we never recommend debt. And so what we really teach people is to cash flow it. So you start with what you have. And this is a real um, motivator when you're starting a side business or small business to get the business to fund itself as soon as possible so that you can use those funds, those profits to reinvest back into the business. So some people will say, well, is it okay to wait six months or a year or two years for my business to break even? Well, you can do that technically, but the truth is I want to light a fire under you to turn a profit as soon as possible where you're able to charge for your services, which when you're charging for services, it's a lot easier to turn a profit. You don't have any hard costs of goods, obviously. So you can do that. Um, But even if you have a product-based business, how can you uh, turn a profit quicker? So some women that I've worked with in my coaching groups have big dreams of developing apps or subscription-based websites. And those are great ideas. I think those would be great long-term goals. But what is some low-hanging fruit? What are some quick wins in a way to serve your customers, to earn a profit, to get money, to reinvest back into the business? Well, what are the pain points you're serving? So in your business, you need to know what problems you're solving because that's what we're doing. When you know what that is, you can find a creative way to help those people, maybe not through an app. So maybe let's just make up something. Maybe your app has some method of organizing things in your home. And so it's going to be a home organizing app. Well, how can you be a home organizer on a service-based business level, earn some money as a still branding yourself as an expert organizer, but you don't launch the app right out of the gate. Instead, that's a year-long project, something like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Finally, let's talk a little bit about hiring and firing people. I know it can be very uncomfortable. You don't want to make a mistake. You right. don't want to hire incorrectly because then you have to let somebody go. Right. Sometimes the business takes a turn and right. you have to let people, right. you know, let people go. Right. So how do you deal? Well, I'll tell you the two pieces of advice I would give specifically around hiring and specific to women is number one, take your time. If you spend time getting to know this person, not just in one 30 minute interview, I mean, four to five to six hour long interviews, see them in different settings, you know, go out to eat for a lunch interview. When you start to spend more time with them, you'll really get to know them. And probably you'll start to see things come to the surface if there's going to be a red flag, Mm -hmm. which brings me to my second tip. If there's a red flag, don't ignore it. Women are incredible with their intuition and picking up on things and nuances. So even if you can't define it, even if you're like, something's off, but I don't know what, 
my recommendation is don't even risk it because your intuition is almost never wrong. Pay attention to that because that red flag is there for a reason. And how about if you've come down the road and you are downsizing? Then what do you, what's your best advice for handling the flip side of the equation? Well, one of the things that we recommend in business is you never want to hire someone until you actually have the money to pay them. Mm -hmm. So you want to have the cash flow to be able to support this person and make sure you're ready to manage and have the responsibility of taking care of this other person and paying them. And so when you're looking at, let's say, for example, um, you're either downsizing or maybe you have someone that's just un- incompetent or they've broken some kind of expectation or guideline that you have, this is something where you want to always honor their dignity. So when you're having a conversation, it should never be public. It should always have notice ahead of time of what's coming down the line, over-communicate, and really honor the person. You know, as cheesy as it sounds, Dave always says we do business including hiring and firing by the golden rule, just treat people how you'd want to be treated. And when you have that in mind, then you take care of people a little better, even in tough circumstances like that. I think that sounds just about right. Christy Wright, the book is The Business Boutique. Congratulations on your launch. Thank Thank you. you for coming to spend a little time with us. And we will be right back with Kelly and your questions. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, Jean. So this is exciting and something a little different. We've got a special mailbag mm-hmm. today. Joe Salcihai, who is the host and the creator of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, is with us. He's been a longtime podcaster. Prior to that, he was a financial advisor for 16 years, and he offered to join us to weigh in on our Q&A session. So, hey, Joe, welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I can't believe you'd let me ruin the show. (laughs) Oh, we're counting on you not to do that. I hope you know. (laughs) Well, I don't know. That's an awfully high bar. Oh, okay. We, We need to know, are you really broadcasting from your mom's basement? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. And you've been here twice. I have been there. I have been there. It is it is a rec room among rec rooms. It is a crazy place there. Different than your show where, you know, you're teaching people some great stuff. You and Kelly together on this segment, as much as any segment that you do. The joke about Stacky Benjamins is if you ever learn anything listening to Stacky Benjamins, please keep it to yourself. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't even know what to say to that if you ever learn anything. That's like the antithesis of our show. Well, well, that's the thing is that is that I think that financial surround sound is really important. And as you know, Gene, because we've talked about this a lot, people just don't talk about money. They they just everybody's embarrassed about what they're doing. And the cool thing that I got to see uh, working in the trenches with maybe 200 families over that period was that we're all making the same mistakes. We're all doing the same stuff. And if we open up and just have casual discussions about it, make it a little fun, then uh, we're more likely to not make those mistakes. Financial surround sound. I'm going to take that and mm-hmm. steal it. I like it. Okay, Joe and Jean, we have some questions. Okay. Oh we received an email from Kristen. She writes, where should I look to invest money if I'm just starting out, finishing grad school, still paying back my loans, and don't have much to invest? Joe, you want to go first? Oh boy, put me on the hot seat right away, Gene. That's nice. You know what I what I like about that question is is that she's talking about investing and about getting started early and I love that. It all depends on her goal, right? Because the, if you start off with a goal in mind, you're a 
much more likely to make a good decision. I like making things easy. Mm -hmm. And I think about my finances as if I'm driving a car. You know, I love the dashboard of the car where I've got the speedometer there. It's very easy for me to kind of get the diagnostics of what's going on with my vehicle. I don't know a bunch about cars, but I know that I can see the basics right there. So if I keep things simple, it's going to be easier to understand. And if I start with the end in mind, like Stephen Covey said in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I'm going to make a better decision. So if she's starting long-term, she's going to look for a stock-based fund because stocks and real estate historically are the two things that really kick inflation's butt. If she's looking short-term, then she's going to more likely put things in cash because the stock market and the real estate market are not places where you put money for a one, two, three, four, five-year goal. Um, and then she'll use a combination of stocks and bonds, I think, between there. But but I think, Gene, where she probably should start first if she doesn't have one is with an emergency fund, because what an emergency fund does is let's say she is looking long term. If she doesn't have an emergency fund and she puts money in stocks and the stocks go down in value, well, then she's going to have to take the money back out. Right. Yeah. Uh, at a loss. So the emergency fund allows her to be more aggressive without worrying about it. Yeah. No, I totally agree. The thing that I would add, Kristen, is if this is money for your future, or even if it's not, just figure out how much you can consistently put away on a regular basis and have that money swiped out of your checking account. Because even if you can only afford, as you say, a small amount, you don't have much to invest, often these automatic contributions will just add up over time. I would look at a Roth IRA for this purpose, especially if you're looking long-term. And then, as Joe said, you invest it based on your goals from within that account. And thanks for writing. What else, Kelly? We have another email. This one is from Jamie, a 29-year-old who is looking to pull together a down payment for a first home in the Bay Area, where they're spending a quarter of their after-tax income on rent. Ouch. That really, you know, mm -hmm. that hurts. I hear that all the time mm -hmm. in the Bay Area here in New York. It's just, okay, you can go on. <laughs> they max out their Roth IRAs, save a few hundred extra each month. But because she's uh, been saving since college, she has around $50,000 currently saved in a robo-advisor at 90% stocks, 10% bonds. That gets her almost almost two-thirds of the way to a 20% down payment on a small starter home that starts around 85000 She writes, Typical advice says to put a down payment savings in a conservative account like a savings account, but at that rate, with our current low ability to save, we wouldn't have a down payment for 10 years. Ideally, we want to buy sooner than that. To me, it makes more sense to leave the 50000 in the higher-risk portfolio where it will grow faster, and if the market ends up crashing before we get a chance to use it for a down payment, well, we wouldn't have been able to buy a house anyway had we taken it out of the market. So no loss, right? Am I crazy? Oh, this is a tough one. She, I don't, I just, I don't like to see people stretching. I mean, what you're talking about, Jamie, and, and Joe, pipe in here anytime, but what you're talking about, Jamie, is taking more risk than you really should be taking for a better return. Now, clearly, because you acknowledge that the market could crash, you understand that you would be taking a greater amount of risk. I wouldn't do it. I would look to see if there are other ways that you could trim the budget, earn a little more to bolster the amount of money that you are able to suck into that account to get you there faster. But, yeah, um, but Joe, what, what about you? 
I totally think she's crazy, Jean. <laughs> I, I read this and I thought, I get where she's going. And like you, I'm glad she understands risk because, as you know, a lot of people don't understand how risky the markets can be, especially with a short-term goal. Man, it's like the casino. So uh, I don't like that. You know what I thought, though, Jean? I thought there's a halfway point, which, okay, if she understands risk, she doesn't have to be 90-10 stocks to bonds. She might be able to find a little halfway point there. And this isn't even halfway. Let me give an idea. Uh, Fidelity, your sponsor, has uh, has a Ginny May bond fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Ginny Mays are not aggressive. You can lose money. You're helping low-income housing is what you're doing. And when I pulled up a Ginny May bond fund, it's going to grow better than a savings account will, as an example. But it's going to take a lot less risk. So the average uh, return for the last 10 years is 4.5%. That's pretty representative of what these funds do. It's not just Fidelity doesn't have the only one. But that's just an example. Because I didn't like that she said, I either have to be 90% stock or savings account. Maybe there's a middle road. I agree with you. And my pop-up was a big fan of Ginny Mays. Got to say, I just remember he he and his Ginny Mays, they were very, (laughs) very tight. Ginny Mays were paying out a little bit more money at that point. But but still. No, but that's still 4.5%. That's nothing to sneeze at. All right. One more, Joe. Kelly, who you got? Nicole on Facebook is wondering, what are your thoughts on high interest savings accounts? Do you have a suggestion on which banks to look into? This savings account is my rainy day fund. Please take into account I'm 27 years old, have a good full time job and put in 13% of my income to my 401k. First of all, yay, Nicole, mm-hmm. 13% of your income Isn't that into your amazing? 401k. You know, that's great. I hope that you're getting some sort of a match. I don't have a list of banks that I want to give you necessarily because those banks change all the time. What I do want to say is go to bankrate.com or another search engine that can lead you to the banks that are currently paying the highest interest rates. What do you think? Yeah, that's where I was headed, Gene, was the same thing because uh, uh, Nick at uh, Magnify Money, another one of those those places, um, he told me that if you get rid of the brick and mortar, if you're comfortable with that, a lot of the cost of a bank and the reason why their savings accounts pay so low is because they have all these branches. If you get rid of those, a lot of the online banks will offer you a higher interest rate. Now, you got to be careful. You want to make sure that it's still FDIC insured. You want to make sure that it's a reputable institution. But if you're comfortable in uh, putting your money with an online bank versus a brick and mortar bank, you might be able to spike that interest rate up a little bit more and not have to worry about you know your money going bye-bye because you still have that insurance that's pretty important. The other benefit to an interest-based savings account, and I have one of these so I, I know, is that if you want your money, these typically don't come with an ATM card. So if you want your money, you've got to transfer it back to a brick-and-mortar bank And that takes a couple of days, which means that you're going to have to think about whether you really want to use the money. And I think having (laughs) to think about it is always a really good thing. Just just pause. Just take a little bit of a pause. Gene, can I tell a story about that for just a second? We, When I was a financial advisor, we would do exactly that. We would recommend to people, and this is back in the 90s, that they take their emergency fund and they put it at a bank across town or maybe even in another city and they cut up 
the the debit card because of that same reason. We, we don't think of creative solutions around problems if we have access to cash. And so how can we put this little this little wall between us and our money that makes our subconscious mind start to work with some other other solutions. And it was amazing when people would set up those savings accounts across town instead of at their their close bank with the ATM access, how how very infrequently they would touch them and their money would then just automatically grow. It was fantastic. Yeah, amazing. What what happens just with a little bit of distance? <laughs> Joe Salcihai of Stacking Benjamins, thank you so much for being a guest. Well, thanks. I'm, I I hope, Kelly, I, I'm so glad I'm done and you get this chair back. <laughs> <laughs> you are great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And we'll be right back with our Thrive segment. On today's Thrive segment, Are you a city mouse or a country mouse or a suburb mouse? Whatever you prefer, cost of living might be the deciding factor. This is according to a new analysis by the folks at Zillow and Care.com. What they found was that city-dwelling families spend an average of around $9,000 more a year than their suburban counterparts when it comes to basic housing and childcare costs. In some cities, though, the disparity is even greater. New York City costs about 71000 more per year than the Burbs, which is why I live in the Burbs. Chicago is a little more than $18,000 more, and Dallas is $14,000 more. But... And this is where all real estate is local. There are some places where suburban living is actually more expensive. We're talking about Philly and Baltimore and Cleveland. Just something to keep in mind as you plot your next move. And since headlines like these always spark the question of whether it's better to rent or to buy... Here are a few questions to ask yourself to help you decide. Number one, how long are you going to live there? If you're going to live there, wherever there happens to be for less than five years, buying rarely makes sense. Number two, do you have a down payment? These days, you can get a mortgage with as little as 3% down, but we learned during the housing crisis having more equity is better. It not only prevents you from having to pay private mortgage insurance if you've got upwards of 20%, it protects you from being underwater if property values fall. And three, How's your credit? You need a credit score of at least 720 to qualify for the best rate on a mortgage. I want to thank Christy Wright, our guest, for being with us on the show. I want to thank Joe Salcihai for being a fun player in our Q&A today. Please keep those questions coming. Please join us on the next episode of Her Money when we'll be bringing you Tiffany Dufu of the fabulous new book, Drop the Ball. As always, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.